Recorded live from Winterfell Studios in Portland, Oregon, this is WPR, Westeros Public Radio. From the Princes of Dawn to the Kings in the North, we bring you the latest and greatest in Westeros. Eight days a week. Hey, small folk, hello and welcome to another edition of WPR. Longtime listeners know I'm your host, Lynn the Jazzman Thunder. And joined, as always, by the stalwart and indefatigable John Bryant. Thank you, Lynn Fender. I like that intro. How you doing today, John Bryant? I'm doing good. What does indefatigable mean? Indefatigable? Yeah. It means uh, you can't get tired out, man. You just keep going. You're like that damn Energizer bunny. I go all night. Just rolling and rolling <laughs> and rolling. Perpetu- just like we do. Perpetual motion. That's right. Uh, brought to you, as always, by a grant from the Joffrey Foundation. Fuck the king. Mm-hmm. And, of course, by the generous donations from listeners like you. Keep them coming in, folks. Yes. We need them. John Bryant, longtime listeners of the show know that we don't give a damn about spoilers here. That's right. We do not. It, if our, by our opinion, you should have already read everything, every book, seen every episode multiple times. That's right. If you haven't done that yet, go ahead and hit the pause button. Go ahead. Do it right now. Did you do it? No, no. You're still listening. Hit that damn pause button. Okay, now you're back. Now you've seen every episode and read every book. You're ready to go. Spoilers be damned. Yes, we're talking about everything. We're talking theories, fan theories, our own theories. Uh, I mean, I'm gonna. I read the prequels to the books, so uh, we're we're gonna cover it all. And like you said, spoilers be damned. That's right, small folk. You are gonna come away with an education here on the war going on in your backyard. About some of the culture in Westeros, mm-hmm. and maybe even learn a thing or two about some things in some other worlds that might have inspired your world. Yes, that's right. So, John and, Bryant, what's on the plate today? So, today we're going to look at the top five coolest places in Westeros. These are the places that you would want to visit, the places you would want to, like, if you were traveling, uh, this, these are the places you want to go, landmarks, awesome stuff to see in Westeros. That's right, small folk. You want to see the world? Go to these places. Yeah. And we've also got a special report on kind of where all this story started we're going to talk a little bit about Robert's Rebellion and what it does to really set the stage for A Song of Fire and Ice. That's right, small folk. You need to know what's going on in your own history and kind of know how we got to where we are today. So John Bright is going to file a special report on that. And then we also have another special report, John Bryant. Yes, we do. On the Wars of the Roses over there in England. A lot of you small folk are ignorant and illiterate. You don't know what England is. That's all right. We'll let you know what it is. And... <laughs> Well, gives you an education on how some of those events might have influenced what's going on in your own backyard. That's right. Now, Lynn Thunder, before we jump into Robert's Rebellion, I kind of wanted to let uh, the small folk know um, where we got started with these stories and kind of what we're doing with this show and how we're trying to educate them. Yeah. Well, you know, longtime listeners know that I was first exposed to these uh, when the show came on HBO. About three episodes in, I said to myself, fuck it, I need to know what happens, I need to know now, <laughs> and I just went and read all the books, and now I'm waiting for another book. See, I had kind of the exact opposite experience. Like, I heard about this show for a long time, and I had heard about the books too, but I was, I'd was i always shied away from them. And then it was probably season three um, was going on, and I had happened to just catch a little bit of a show with a friend, and I was like, wow, this looks pretty amazing. And so I was 
three or four years late to the bandwagon, but boy, am I on it now. Oh, John Bryant, you're in driver's seat. I am. I've read all the books a couple times, seen every show, and I'm, I'm a big fan of this uh, George Railroad Martin's world here. That's right, George Railroad Martin, because <laughs> he's going to railroad you. <laughs> That's what he does. <laughs> That's what the RR stands for. All right, John Bryant, shall we? Let's go to Westeros. To Westeros. <laughs> <laughs> Come, bow before your king. Bow your shits. <laughs> it's a shame the throne is made of cocks. They'd have never got him off it. All right, here we are in Rest- Westeros. That's right. John Bryant, you've been doing a lot of research in this, talking to a lot of people. I know you visited the Citadel. That's right. I've been talking to the maesters in the Citadel. All right. I even talked to King Robert himself about Robert's Rebellion, also known as the War of the Usurper. Ooh, good tease, good tease. Don't say that in front of Robert, though. He well, does not like it. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. So, before the books pick up, and before Robert sat his throne, King Aerys Targaryen, the second of his name, sat the Iron Throne in King's Landing. Tell us about Aerys. Well, he was the 17th Targaryen king. It's a lot of kings. Yeah, the, the Targaryens had ruled Westeros for almost 300 years. Well, how, how did they get to rule in Westeros? Well, that's that's a pretty big story amongst itself. Uh, 300 years ago, um, Aegon the Conqueror came, came from uh, Dragonstone and landed in King's Landing with his two sisters and his three dragons and said, you know what, I like it here, I think I'm going to make it all mine. And he did. He pretty much did. He he didn't conquer Dorne. That didn't happen till after he was uh, dead. But he re- he united six of the seven kingdoms, which is no small feat. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. Okay, so we got the Targaryen so, line of kings. Targaryen line of kings. Aerys Targaryen, seventeenth king. So um, sometime around Aerys' twentieth year of ruling, the biggest tournament the seven kingdoms had ever seen was held. By Lord Walter Went, Lord of Harrenhal. Now we've all rec- we all know Harrenhal from the show. A lot of things have gone down there. Uh, I think it's one of our top five places. It well, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, so the Wints at this time are a very rich house in the Riverlands, um, and this tournament was to honor Lord Walter Went's maiden daughter. Uh, so kind of imagine my super sweet sixteen in the middle evil, medieval ages. Um, it was also the beginning of spring, or so th- people thought. It was actually the beginning of what would later be known as the false spring. Oh, damn. So springtime is here. He's got his maiden daughter, daughter super rich. You know, he, springtime's coming, so that means even more money's going to be coming in because all of his crops are going to be um, sold and stuff. So he's feeling pretty good, decides to throw the biggest tournament the seven kingdoms had ever seen so there's jousting a melee a tournament a tournament of jugglers uh, singers and even a dancing bear and especially the most important part is there's a huge purse for whoever wins the final tilt what do you mean by purse uh cash prize to whoever wins okay and so because of this huge um purse um it attracts a ton of people from all over the realm uh you know chance to win big money here and 
probably some of the best you know entertainment you'll ever see. So Riverlands, right in the the Riverlands are right in the middle of Westeros. So it's kind of a central spot where everyone, all the different houses from around the realm, can get there in about you know in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, all the lords of the Riverlands are there. The lords of the Vale, High Garden, the Reach, uh, some great houses from the north, and King Aerys. Now, why is King Aerys there? It's a big tournament. King's going to be there. King's going to be there. But it's important to note, King Aerys hasn't left the Red Keep in nearly three years. Whoa, what's going on with Aerys? Well, he's a little paranoid. About three years ago, um, there was a little dispute with a lord close by to King's Landing that thought he was getting taxed too much. So when Aerys came to talk to him about it, uh, they kidnapped King Aerys. Oh, shit. <laughs> it would have been a dungeon for six months. And Lord Tywin, who, Tywin, who's hand of the king at the time, is outside of this uh, city. Just, you know, he knows that if he sends in his army, they're probably going to kill the king. Uh, but he can't just not do anything either. Right. Um, so, long story short, uh, Barrister, Barrister the Bold, Barrison Selmy, goes into the uh, city by night and kind of smuggles slash fights his uh, way out with King Aerys. So like a black King ops Aerys, operation. Exactly. So he's he goes back to King's Landing and he's like, fuck it, I'm staying in the Red Keep where no one can touch me. But for some reason, he decides he wants to come to this tournament. I mean, it's a big tournament, so people understand, but it's it's a little strange. You know, that it's another reason why everyone in the realm wants to come here because the king's going to be there. All right, so the king's there. This so is a big tournament. King's going... Uh, Along with his son, Crown Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, heir to the Iron Throne, uh, all of the King's Guard, which includes uh, their newest King's Guard brother, Jamie Lannister. So this is like the Super Bowl, Oscars, and WrestleMania all rolled into one. But everyone is drunk and heavily armored. I like it. So at the beginning of the tournament, tournament how these things kind of work is Lord Wentz's maiden daughter is the reigning queen of love and beauty and how the tournament works is her brother her four brothers fight in this tournament and kind of defend her crown you know it's it's a pretend crown but the until someone beats them or whoever wins at the end gets to um, name a new reigning queen of love and beauty uh, i guess until the next time they have a tournament not exactly sure how those um rules work right but yeah. you know you want to be the queen of love and beauty otherwise you're the queen of fugly i guess <laughs> yeah exactly anyone who's not the queen of lo love and beauty can uh go take a shit and shit i don't know uh <laughs> so <laughs> Rhaegar targaryen prince of the realm um ends up winning the final tilt he rides past his wife and names lyanna stark the queen of love and beauty Holy shit. Yeah, pretty ballsy move. I guess if you're uh, the prince, you can really get away with doing whatever, whatever you want. But I guess so. I mean, how would Lady Bryant feel if you didn't name her the Queen of Love and Beauty? Uh, she'd probably tear out the eyes of whoever I did name Queen of Love <laughs> and Beauty and then, like, I don't know, turn me into uh, Unsullied. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, this is strange because Rhaegar Targaryen already has his wife, Elia Martell of Dawn, who's a princess of Dawn. So it's also weird because Lyanna Stark is betrothed to Robert Baratheon. Oh. They've been betrothed for a long time. So we got ourselves some weird sort of love rectangle going well, on. Well, kind of. You know, it's it's not too uncommon for, you know, a, 
a prince to name a young woman queen of love and beauty especially you know Leanna had come there from Winterfell really far away this is probably the first tournament she's ever seen so Rhaegar you know tries to make it kind of special for her and names her queen of love and beauty now is the first is this the first time that Rhaegar's seen Lyanna Stark that's not really probably I I don't think that's ever specifically stated but I'm pretty sure it would be because you know uh, her her father hasn't taken her to court or anything so we're gonna go ahead and assume this is the first time he's seen her and he must be just enthralled with her beauty yeah she, she must be drop dead gorgeous oh yeah she is a real vixen of the north said to have some wolf blood in her Ooh, yeah. probably been on a few calendars up there <laughs> yeah so a lot of people see this as a slap in the face to robert because you know Rhaegar does this to his you know fiance in front of anybody who's anybody in the entire realm and passes up his own wife to do it that's got to mean something too yeah but robert kind of laughs it off um he's not the kind of guy to start a fight with a prince over you know something as small as that that would be he's a cool guy he's a cool guy uh as far as you know i mean him and Rhaegar are cousins so he's not too upset by it so what happens after the tournament so a little while after the tournament of harrenhal brandon stark is on his way to River Run to marry Catelyn Tully. But then he gets word that Rhaegar T- Targaryen has seemingly adup- abducted Lyanna Stark, his sister. Well, why do you say seemingly? Well, you know, we don't really know exactly what happened. Everyone that was there during the seemingly seeming abduction has never really testified about it. You know, they've never said to anyone... Oh yeah, he you know, Lyanna Stark never said, "Yeah, he kidnapped me." Or and Rhaegar never said, "Yeah, I kidnapped her." Uh, so maybe she mm. ran away. You know, she could have just been on her way to Winterfell and met up with Rhaegar Targaryen and uh, they were like, "Hey, want to go back south with me instead of going up to Winterfell where it's all cold?" And she could have been like, "Sure, why right. not? Come yeah. check out my dope ass keep." Know, we do know that she was a little nervous about her betrothal to Robert and him staying faithful. I mean, that doesn't really make sense since Rhaegar Targaryen already has a wife and kids. But we do know that she was a little hesitant to her about her betrothal with uh, Robert. Right. Maybe maybe it was totally platonic. All right. Okay. Yeah. But, a lot of uncertainty there. Yeah. But as far as Brandon's concerned, this guy just freaking came in and took his sister. Uh, so he, he gather, gathers up a couple of his buddies, most of them younger sons and younger and uh, brothers from Lords of the Vale. And heads straight to King's Landing. Skips the wedding, goes to King's Landing to get his sister back. Um, They get there, and Brandon is so pissed off, he literally stands in front of the gate at the Red Keep and demands that Rhaegar come out and die. That's how, yeah. So he really throws down. Yeah, and you gotta, you know, you gotta think about it if you... On the basis that he doesn't even know what happened, like he doesn't know be... what happened, but he's gathered. Okay, I've got a pretty sister and a prince kidnapped her. He only wants one thing from her, and once you know, that's some illicit crown on crown loving. Yeah, I mean, them's fighting words. Yeah, if you, when you do that, I mean, uh, and the other part of it is like he doesn't want his sister's honor to be besmirched. Once you know she hooks up with Rhaegar Targaryen, one time her maiden head is gone. She is no yeah. longer the maiden of Stark. And pretty much useless. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in his <laughs> eyes. <laughs> Robert, yeah, okay. Robert may or may not want to marry her anymore. And, you know, 
the marriage between uh, Leanna Stark and Robert Baratheon isn't just you know because they're in love or whatever. It's to seal ties between two great houses. That's right. These are two of the greatest houses of Westeros. Yeah. So Brandon Stark's outside saying, Rhaegar, come out here and die. Bring me my sister. Um, now, Rhaegar isn't even in King's Landing. Oh, so <laughs> yeah. So Brandon Stark's looking really stupid. Yeah, Brandon Stark's going into this thing a little headstrong. Maybe should have taken a breath and figured out, I don't know, some sort of strategy. Game plan. Yeah, that doesn't work, though. Or that doesn't happen, though. What does happen is Ares, the king comes out and says, all of you are arrested for plotting to murder someone of the crown. Someone of the, you know, the blood of the crown. Paranoid Ares. Yeah. Ares does not take kindly to people talking about killing him or his family. So now Brandon Stark and his dudes are all in jail. They're all in jail. Then Ares summons the fathers of the, all the men, so Brandon and all the other lords' um, fathers, and tells them they need to come to King's Landing and account for their son's actions. So Lord Rickard Stark and the other Lords of the Vale head down to King's Landing. And you've got to think, Rickard Stark is pissed. Two of his children are held hostage by the crown, and he has to go all the way from Winterfell to King's Landing, which, I mean, I, 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 I always think that would take probably, like, you know, they're probably traveling kind of light. He goes with 200 of his best men, so they could probably make it there two months yeah, a few months probably. Two months, three months. Yeah. It's still it's a pain in the ass. Yeah, huge pain in the it's ass. It's not a day trip. Um and he's probably thinking, ah, and my my daughter's maiden head is gone. That's right. But um so yeah, he's going with two hundred men. So they all show up to King's Landing, you know, Lord of Winterfell, bunch of lords of the Vale, and Ares has all of them arrested for pretty much no reason other than Treason. They're plotting to kill me or my son. Um, Ares has all of the northern men and all of the lords of the Vale executed without trial. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty big thing to happen because, you know, there's supposed to be some semblance of a trial. Right. And he just says, nope, take off all their heads, except for Rickard Stark. He knows that, you know, the, the other lords are... They're lords, but they're a little lesser lords. I mean, Rickard Stark is n warden of the north. Right, he's, he's a big cheese. Yeah, I mean, if it, he's probably like, I don't know, third or fourth on the rungs of powerful, you know? So Rickard Stark demands a trial by combat. Ares says, okay, fire is the champion of House Targaryen. Now, if everyone Damn. knows House Targaryen, you know, they're dragons. That's, that's their big thing. They haven't had dragons in a long time. But Ares loves fire. He loves burning people, especially people that have committed treason in his eyes. So let me tell you what happened to Rickard and Brandon Stark. Rickard Stark was suspended from the rafters of the throne room, and King Ares had his pyromancer burn a huge bl blaze below him. While he cooked in his heavy plate, he watched his eldest son slowly die. Brandon was connected to a Tairashi strangling device that tightened a leather strap around his throat the more he moved. They laid a long sword just out of reach of Brandon. Ares laughed and berated them and encouraged Brandon to try and save his, his melting father. God damn. Yeah. They were killed in front of the whole court. 
Berries was there. Grandmaster Picel was there. Jamie Lannister was there. Jamie Lannister was there. All most of the Kingsguard. Barrister Selmy was there. A lot of people watched this terrible thing happen in the throne room while Ares was just sitting there probably jacking off. <laughs> it was said that, you know, Ares didn't go to his queen's uh, bed bedchambers very often, but whenever he burned somebody, he was she knew she was getting a call that night. Wow. Yeah. Ares is messed up. Yeah. Um we could uh there were some uh washerwomen and some uh lady servants, I guess, what are they? Handmaids of the queen that had said the next day it looked like a beast had ravished this girl, the queen. That's how hard up Burnin, Brandon, and Rickard Stark made Ares Targaryen. So maybe Ares is just looking at these guys like, look, man, I got to get off. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you got to go. <laughs> yeah, it's just your t it's your turn. But e either way, it's pretty messed up. And So this is a big deal because... You know, the, this is the Warden of the North and his eldest son, two of the most powerful men in the realm. Yeah. And if he can do this to those two guys, everyone else is probably looking around like, oh, man, maybe I'm next. So we can spend a lot of time breaking down the aftermath of this, which is pretty much the first step in Robert's Rebellion. But why not hear it from the man himself? Let's talk to King Robert and see what his account of the battles to come would be. Rebellion. The crimes of House Targaryen were too heinous to go unanswered. The noble houses of Baratheon, Stark, and Arryn united to oppose and overthrow the line of the cursed Dragon Kings. While Ned Stark and Arryn secured an alliance with the Tullys of Riverrun, I called the banners of Storm's End and rode out in force against the Mad King and his minions. Gods, those were some battles. Our first victory occurred at Summerhall, where I faced off against an army of dragon loyalists and won three battles in a single day. Three in one day. Seven hells, that was a glorious day. We tried to take Ashford Castle in the Reach, but the Tyrrells beat us back. We had to regroup. My army was pursued north by Eris's army and took refuge in the Stony Sept in the Riverlands. When the Targaryen army entered the town, the Sept bells tolled, a signal to the townspeople of the battle that was to come. As the Targaryens searched from house to house for me, the combined forces of Ned Stark and the Tullys swept into the city. Gods, what a day that was. It's now known as the Battle of the Bells. We overwhelmed the Mad King's forces and sent them scampering back to King's Landing. Eris's son, Rhaegar, who started the whole damn thing, finally emerged from hiding in the south and assembled his own army to face us. As for the Mad King, he must have been pissing himself. The battle that would decide the fate of the Seven Kingdoms occurred at the crossing of the Green Fork of the Trident River. Rhaegar commanded the royal host, which was some 40,000 strong. My forces were outnumbered by nearly 5,000 men. But that didn't matter. 
They were fresh, but we were battle-hardened and had justice on our side. As the battle raged around us, I faced off with Rhaegar, the stag and the dragon right there in the ford of the river. I fought with the fury of ten men, raining blow after blow upon that vile prince before burying my warhammer in his chest. I hit him so hard the rubies on his armor broke free, flinging them into the stream. They call it the Ruby Ford now. With that scum Rhaegar dead and the royal army shattered, our next move was to make for King's Landing. But I'd sustained a few wounds in the battle and was unable to ride. I sent Ned Stark to the capital to face the Mad King and make him pay for his crimes. That was the first part of the multi-part report on Robert's Rebellion. Next time, the sacking of King's Landing. Ooh. <laughs> now, coming up, we have top five coolest places in Westeros. That's right, small folk. In an effort to expose you to the culture, places, and people of Westeros, we are doing a top five. This is Westeros Public Radio with Lynn the Jazzman Thunder. I am the god of jits and wine. And John Bryant. I vomited on a girl once in the middle of the act, not proud of it. Bringing you the latest and greatest from Westeros. The time is 6.35. Valyrian Standard. The next part of the show I'm really excited for, we're going to do our top five list. That's right. Every week we're going to do top five, uh, just to kind of expose you to the culture, the people, the places of Westeros. And so this week's top five is the top five coolest places in Westeros. It's kind of like your favorite places in Westeros, right? That's, That's right. That's how I did my list. So, uh... Jen, Bryant, I think we got to start from the bottom. Yeah. Start with number five. And the cool thing is I... I compiled my list. You compiled your list. We haven't seen each other's lists. That's right. You can't look over here. Yeah. So <laughs> we're going to see who was wrong and who was right. I don't think it's a competition. I think it's... It's totally a competition. All right. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Number five. What do you say is number five? My number five coolest places in Westeros, Harrenhal. Why, why Harrenhal? What Harrenhal, is Harrenhal? Hall has some of the coolest things that happen um, in the books happen at Harrenhal. Um... It's held by the Wents, um, but who, then who are the Wents? They're a uh, lesser, small, a smaller family name in Westeros. Um, it's held by Old Lady Went, who's a widow that stays there. Now, the thing about Harrenhal, I guess we should go back and I should talk about the history of it a little bit. King Heron held Harrenhal. Uh, in the time that the Dragon Wars were going on. and uh, So about 300 years before the books. Yeah. Uh, King Heron builds this giant, undefeatable castle in the middle of uh, Westeros and claims it as his seat, and it's unpenetrable. It's uh, the House of a Hundred Hearths. It's got... It claims to have a hundred hearths in its Great Hall, which is a ton. It's know? a gigantic castle. Yeah, most Great Halls have maybe like two... Maybe three, four. Uh, it's a gigantic castle. Say they can't be stormed by uh, land. But it's one weakness. Fucking dragons. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's got a dragon weakness. So 
uh, King Aegon. Aegon the Conqueror. Aegon the Conqueror comes in and fucks up Harrenhal, leaves it in ruins, and leaves it Harren- melted, melted Melt- stone, melted stone. Where do you see melted stone? <laughs> yeah, no, only where dragons have been. Um, so uh, the Heron line is just dead after that. But Harrenhal remains. Some part of the castle is rebuilt and people use it, but um, most of it is in ruins. Because it's such a big so big that you could yeah. build, you could just build up a you know small section of it and it would still be big. Um. Then Lady Went holds it. Not much interesting happens until the Army of the Five Kings. Is that what we're going to refer it to as? Yeah, let's do yeah. that. So when the Army of the Five Kings happens, uh, the Lannister army goes in and just fucks up Harrenhal. Um, and takes it as their base. Takes it as their base. Uh, goes back and forth for a little while as to who holds it. And Arya ends up there, which Arya's story is one of my favorite parts of the story. Um, so... Heron Hall, just I don't know, just so many cool things happen there. It's got a cool history. It's the house of uh, the king castle of the hundred hearths. It's gigantic and it, it's cursed. Mm-hmm. They say it's cursed. It, oh yeah, it's cursed. Yeah, um, and it's it's in such it's right in the middle of Westeros, uh, so it's seen a lot of battles. And you know, whenever war breaks out in Westeros, that middle part always gets you know the worst of it. Yeah, it's like it's like the town horse that everyone rides. <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. Well, okay. Uh, solid entry number five, John, yeah. right? Solid entry. Uh, I actually said the Erie was the fifth coolest place in Westeros. Okay. Erie is pretty awesome. Yeah. So the Erie is this mountain fortress, literally built into like the top side of a mountain. Into right? the stone. Yeah, into the stone. It's carved out of a mountain. It's not built so much as it is sort of hollowed out. Yeah. And, I mean, you've seen it in the shows a lot. Uh, it's beautiful. And it's it's unassaultable. You cannot get to it. Uh, you know, if you want to even approach it, you have to go through this bloody road, go through three gates, and you can only walk through three men abreast. I mean, anyone who comes after you is after you is going to get slaughtered. So yeah, it's high you, up you there. Could, you pretty much have to go up tons and tons of stairs that are. You can't march more than one person at a time up these stairs. And that whole time you're going up those stairs, people would be shooting arrows at you and throwing rocks at you. Yeah. You, no one would make it up. It's like the worst mountain to have to climb ever. Yeah. And then, of course, once you get there, you got to make sure you don't fall through the moonroof, which I think is probably the coolest way to execute people ever because you just sort of toss them out the moonroof and they're like, ah. <laughs> yeah. It's clean. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and you know what? I like their cells too. You know, yeah. It's just, you know, it's only three walls because the fourth wall is just air yeah yeah they say it's the only cell in westeros that you're free to escape from whenever you want (laughs) exactly i think it's just the coolest if i had to choose a castle to be lord of i would choose the eerie yeah i don't know if i would want to be lord of it though because it's uh the shipping cost would be outrageous man you can't grow anything up there they have to have everything like brought to them Uh, uh, shut up (laughs) i'm just pointing out devil's edge all right, all right. Number four. Uh, I'm going to go first this time. Okay. Number four, I think the coolest place in Westeros is Dragonstone. Okay, Dragonstone. That's cool. That kind of lines up with my number four, so let's, yeah. let's hear it. So Dragonstone, you know, it's this kind of little island sort of off to the east of Westeros uh, between them and Essos. And the reason I chose it is because of its historical significance, number one. You know, it's where the first Targaryens landed and had their outpost, and it's from where they conquered all of Westeros. 
I mean, if you want to get right to the start of things, that's where it happens. That's, yeah, that's really where it starts. And it's also got this very cool castle. It's uh, got some special stone on it that's been shaped actually into the shape of a dragon. So the castle is very artistic, and it's very cool. And, you know, if I was in there, I would just say, hey, man, look at my dragon castle. <laughs> Do you have a dragon castle? No, you nope. don't? No? Oh, okay, well, all right. I got a dragon castle then, I guess. <laughs> Plus, I mean, the history for it, you can charge, uh, I mean, visitors a fee to come in and sort of tour the island. I feel like it's a real moneymaker. Oh, yeah, totally. So, yeah, I think... It's where Daenerys Stormborn was born. Exactly. I mean, there's just so much that happens there. I feel like every 20 feet, you could have a station, someone pays you, you know, a copper, and you tell them a little bit about it. So, yeah, and uh, Dragonstone, also very close to my number four. Okay, what's your number four? Old Valyria. Old Valyria, all right. So Old Valyria was first known as um, the Valyrian Freehold, and that's where all the Valyrian families were before the doom of Valyria hit. So they had dragons there. They had a bunch of dragon riders. They had all these blonde, blue, or purple-eyed people <laughs> Ooh. that uh, the Targaryens were one of the families there. So the Targaryens left Valyria and went to Dragonstone. But when, after they left, Valyria, the doom happened. And it's never really clearly described as to exactly what the doom was, but it's kind of, it was a... Like a uh, huge volcano eruption. Uh, yeah, pretty much it turned into a volcano, and the land split apart, and lava flowed up, and all the dragons there died, and all the people there died. Yeah, and it's still, it's still a bad place to be. You don't want to go through Valyria. because yeah, Valyria now is where they send all the people with uh, grayscale. The stone men. The stone men, that's right. And, uh, sh you know, ships don't go through it. Sailors never go through there because uh, it's filled with these people that are basically like crazy monster zombies that are yeah. afflicted with uh, grayscale that's taken yeah. over their whole body. Them. Yeah, so that was my number four was Old Valyria. All right, solid entry number four. Who, what, what's your number three? My number three, let me pop my list up real quick. The Riverlands. The Riverlands? Yeah. I Are you sure that's number three? Oh, you put well, the Riverlands in number three? Yeah, I did. Okay. I did. All right. Tell me why. Well, a lot of shit goes down in the Riverlands. Like, most of the great um, happenings... I mean, it's... Again, it's close to Harrenhal. It's the middle of Westeros. Whenever there's civil wars between the north and the south, the Riverlands in the middle. That's where they're gonna, the armies are going to meet up. Um, so many important... You know, the first three books pretty much take, you know, a great part in the Riverlands, right? Yeah, that's where all the nasty, horrible things people do yeah. to each other happens. Arya, Arya gets stuck traveling through the Riverlands. The Band of Brothers in the Riverlands. Uh, the Mountain wander around the Riverlands. Yeah, the Mountain goes and sacks pretty much all the villages in the Riverland. Jamie Lannister gets his hand cut off there. Um, yeah, just all the terrible, awesome things that happen in Game of Thrones. A lot of it happens in the Riverlands. So that was my number three. Nasty place to be. All right. Yeah. My number three is actually Harrenhal. Because I agree, Harrenhal is a pretty awesome place. Oh, really? Yeah. You've got Harrenhal, too. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's all right. we're, all, we're on the same. Uh, yeah. That's why we're co-hosts. Exactly. All right. My number two is The Wall. Nice. And everyone knows about the wall, I think. It's just this gigantic wall of ice, and it's got castles all over it. It's 8,000 years old or something. In the far north. 
Yeah, in the far north, it's the last thing standing between civilization and the barbarians beyond the wall, <laughs> yeah, the... and and maybe the White Walkers. Oh yeah, and you know, just that alone makes it super cool. But here's why I didn't put it as number one, John Bryant, because this is a little bit of a theory from Lynn Thunder here, the okay. jazz man, bringing you some, uh, you know, some, some hot takes, some you know, some hot tips, you know. Okay. Uh, I have a feeling that when the White Walkers come down. With their army of the dead, they're going to get to the wall, and people are going to be like, "This is our last hope. We got to stop them." And the White Walkers are going to take one look at this gigantic wall of ice, and wave their arms or something, or do do something crazy. Scream at it, and the wall is just going to collapse, crumble. This gigantic seven hundred foot wall that stood there for thousands of years is just going to fall, hmm. like it wasn't even there. And people are going to be taken aback. They're going to say, oh, my God, I thought the wall is where everything was going to happen. And now the White Walkers and the Army of the Dead are just coming through like it's a highway. The wall will fall. That's that's the jazz man's theory. You know, it kind of makes sense, too, because it's, you know, they killed they killed Jon Snow. Yeah. The Night Watch kind of fucked themselves, and it would totally be karma if they just, you know, all the White Walkers showed up and they're like, oh, you got a wall of ice? Yeah. Guess what? Plus, I can control ice. You whatever. know, George R. R. Martin, he always loves to throw you a curveball. You know, oh, you yeah. think things are going right, and they're going to go left. So, the, you know, only... you think Ed Stark's the uh, the major character? No, he's not. He's going to lose his head. Oh, you think Rob Stark's going to be the main character? No, he's not. Yeah. Oh, you think Jon Snow's the main character? No, he's not. My only qualm with that would be, well... You think the wall the is this wall was, amazing place? No, it's not. The, the children of the forest help build the wall. Mm-hmm. And the children of the forest have ways of um, keeping the White Walkers at bay. They do. So I kind of feel like maybe the the wall has some sort of special power or, I don't know, magic spell on it. Maybe. Uh, we'll find out. It's a big wall, though. Yeah. It'd have to be a hell of a spell. And it would be, I think it would just be the biggest mind fuck if the White Walkers got to it and then it's just yeah, gone. Just, Castle Blacks is just crushed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why it's number two. Yeah. All of our favorite characters are away from Castle Black too. Sam's not there anymore. Sam's not my favorite favorite character. Well I'm just saying he's one I hate of, Sam. One of the lead character you know, lead characters. Sam's not there. John's presumably leaving. Yeah. I would assume I don't know. If he if he's there at all. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. So it could fall. All right. So number two is the wall. Yeah. That's a good choice. What's your number two? My number two is Highgarden. Highgarden? Uh, if, I, if I had to live anywhere in Westeros, I'm living at Highgarden. Okay. I can't blame you. Marjorie Tyrell, a uh, pretty nice looking lady. She might, be, she might make a top five most beautiful woman in Westeros yeah. list Highgarden is full of babes. Sunshine. All the best food comes from there. Pretty much Highgarden is California. It's got the best wine, too. Yes, it ha- does have the best wine. Um, it's, it's plentiful. You know, they can grow all the food they could ever need there, and they provide food for most of the realm. Um, you can grow fruits there. You can. They have tons of cattle. They have hay, wheat, barley, all that good stuff. Um, the best wine. And, yeah, they're the richest fam. You know, they've got the richest families there. So Highgarden... Definitely the place I would live in Westeros on my number number two on my list. What's, oh, okay. So uh, now we're going to number one. Yeah, number one. Coolest place in Westeros. All right, John Bryant, what's the coolest place in Westeros? Old Town. 
Old Town. Old Town. John Bryan throwing <laughs> curveballs. That's my curveball. All Old right. Town is, Sell me on Old Town. It's the capital of. Well, it used to be the capital before King's Landing was the capital. Okay. It's this giant stone city. Remind us where it is. Uh, it's southwest. It's ne- it's near Highgarden. Okay. The road from uh from Old Town leads to Highgar through Highgarden to get to King's Landing. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just. Be the best. It's uh, um, it's a city. It's a true city. Kind of like the only other real big true city would be uh, considered, I guess, uh, King's Landing. Um, so it's a nice city. It's where the the citadel is, where all the maesters are trained. So all the you know, it's kind of like a be like a university town, almost like a Stanford or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, like a Eugene. Yeah, well. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. A cooler Eugene with better weather. Yeah, exactly. And actual smart people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it just that's it'd be, you know, I guess it, you know how whenever you live in a in a area, going to the city is always the coolest thing, like when you're living up around here going to Portland's a cool thing. It'd be like going to Old Town would be the cool thing to do. Yeah. Lots and- lots of lots of inns, lots of uh bars and wine sinks and all that good stuff. True. And, you know, Portland has Winterfell Studios where we are recording. Exactly. And, and Old Town probably has something cool to, too. Oh, know? yeah. Okay. All right. If we were to broadcast from Westeros instead of Portland, it would definitely be from Old Town. Old Town. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. I chose... Your number one. As number one, the Titan of Bravos. Ah, so Bravos. Yeah. Nice. All right. For those of you who don't know what the Titan is... The Titan is this gigantic statue in Bravos. It guards the only entrance by water into Bravos. So gigantic that ships go through its legs yeah. to get into Bravos. It is just it's a massive statue. Massive, massive, massive. Like think of like the size of a like, You've a, probably seen it on the show. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to describe it to you. It's just huge. And the bottom half, the legs are are made of stone. So carved out of stone. And the top half is made out of copper. And it's actually a fortress on the inside with men in it. And they can, you know, it's almost like if if an enemy ship is, tries to get in, you know, the Titan of Bravos can, like, take a shit on it as it tries to come <laughs> yeah. in. Drop hot tar on them. Yeah, you know. And it's, you know, it's, uh, you're not going to get through the Titan of Bravos with your ship. Mm-hmm. And he's got a broken sword, too, right? Yeah, he's got a broken sword because he's seen some shit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his eyes, they have watch fires in them, so their eyes, his eyes are glowing. And he, he can blow a gigantic horn and re- every time a ship comes through, and it's just, oh, it's massive. And I think it's the coolest place because I wish that in our world we had stuff like that. Like We used to, like the Colossus of Rhodes back in the ancient times. Uh, it was destroyed by an earthquake. And the closest thing we even have that comes maybe even approaches is the Statue of Liberty. And the Statue of Liberty is actually not that big. It's only like 100 feet high. It's really not. I went and saw it last year, and I was not impressed. Yeah, you know, you'd think it'd be a lot... And it doesn't shoot arrows at you. Yeah, (laughs) it can't think of shit on ships. Yeah. (laughs) So I wish that our world had things like the Titan of Bravos, because it's just, it's massive, it's huge, it it can do lots of stuff, and... Oh, the city of Bravos is pretty cool, too. Oh, yeah, Bravos Bravos on its own is really awesome. uh, um... Gosh, what's that city in uh, Italy that uh, you ride the little Venice. boats? Venice. It's like Venice. Yeah. yeah. Venice with all the canals and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. I, Titan of Bravos for me is my number one. 
coolest place in Westeros. Nice. All right, so John Bryant, uh, you had a lot of things wrong on your list, uh, oh, but yeah. you got you got Heron Hall right, so I'll give you that. All right, <laughs> I do like your uh, Titan of Providence. You seriously wouldn't live in Highgarden? I'd probably live in Highgarden if Marjorie lived with me. <laughs> I'd live in Highgarden. Okay, small folk. You know, we here at WPR believe that it is our mission and our duty to expose you to places outside of Westeros and even outside of Essos in an effort to give you some insight into your own world. You could say nonfiction? You could, but... I'm not going to think of it like yeah. that. Uh, nonfiction is kind of lame and for nerds. Exactly. Okay. Well, you know, small folk, most of you are illiterate, so you really can't go to the library or... The Citadel. Know, exactly. Read through scrolls. Exactly. Yeah. So we're going to do the work for you. And what I have done is I have filed a multi-part report on the Wars of the Roses in England, which really formed the basis for a lot of what's going on in this War of the Five Kings that has been ravaging your lands. So what you are about to hear is part one of a multi-part report on the Wars of the Roses in England. I'm excited. To England! To England! <laughs> Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. Why? He hasn't got shit all over him. I am Arthur, king of the Britons. King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. That is the result of his majesty's government. Okay, small folks, so here we are in England. First off, a lot of you are probably wondering, what is England? I'm wondering, why is there tea and scrumpets everywhere? That's right, it's a strange place. Yeah. Well, small folks, England is this island nation off the coast of a larger continent to the east. If you want to think about it, England is kind of like Westeros, and this larger continent to the east is kind of like Essos. Huh. Yeah, if that helps you think about it, go ahead and think about it that way. It does help. And I want to start off with a quote that was wrote, written by a bard named Shakespeare about this time period. He said that now is the winter of our discontent. Fucking Shakespeare. Yeah, I'm not a fan, but you know, that just lets you know, small folk, that what we are about to get into is not some happy, fun summertime. We're about to get into winter. Ooh. Our story picks up with the death of King Henry V. King Henry V died pretty young. He died at age 35. And he had spent the seven years of his reign trying to conquer a place called France. Hmm. Why do you want France? Well, France is this country in that Essos-like continent across the sea from England. And Henry V is descended from a long line of kings called the Plantagenets. What you need to know about the Plantagenets is that going back about 400 years before this time, they had come over from a place called Normandy, which is actually inside of France. They had come over to England and conquered it and taken the throne for themselves. So these kings of England are actually not just kings of England, they're also nobles of France. Now, before Henry V had taken the throne, 
There was another king of England called Edward III. Now, Henry V dies very young, dies at age 35. But before him, Edward III died very old, died at age 65. That's very old for this time period, okay? In fact, he died so old that he had had several, several children. We're, we're talking more than ten children. Whoa. And he's got four sons that he outlived, all four of them. And these four sons all had children of their own. Now, the problem with this is, because he had so many kids, they all had their own kids. And what you have starting to develop is multiple different royal lines. There's not just one anymore. There's several running around. Now, when Edward III dies, one of his grandchildren, the son of his firstborn son, takes the throne. But that king is then deposed by one of his cousins, you know, one of the sons of another son of Edward III. This is Henry V's father. So he usurps the throne from his cousin, the rightful heir, and takes it for himself and passes it down to Henry V. Oh, that sounds familiar. So all of a sudden, you know, you can already see that these lines are not just content with sitting around with what they have. A lot of them are very, very ambitious. Ambition, baby. Now, Henry V is from a line of the Plantagenets that's known as the Lancasters. Does that sound familiar at all? Lancasters. Where have I heard a name like that? That's tickling my brain a little bit. Yeah. So Henry's of this line. And when he takes the throne, Henry decides that he's going to be a warrior king. Nice. So he goes over to France, and he continues fighting what's known as the Hundred Years' War. This is a war between England and France that actually lasts longer than a hundred years. So Henry's just fighting a very small part of it, but he does a damn good job. So are they trying to take France for any specific reason other than they just want to expand? Like, does does France have some sort of, you know, commodity that they want? Well, France has a lot of land in this time, a lot of very valuable land. And the reason that the kings of England want it is because way back, one of them actually married another line of nobility, of French nobility. So you've got English crowns that are also French nobles, and you have them marrying into another noble family in France. And one of the kings of France, known as Charles VI, is certifiably insane. In fact, he's so insane that the nobles get together and try to decide what they're going to do with their king. And some of the nobles decide that the kings of England should also be the kings of France. Ah. Some nobles say no and say we need a different French king of France. And that's not the start of this war, but it does fuel it. And it's why Henry's fighting the war. He's fighting for the throne of France. Okay. In fact, at one point... He is crowned King of France, but it's not recognized by the people he's fighting against. So he's trying to unite these two realms through through war, though, instead of... Through conquest. Through conquest, yeah. He's a warrior king. So Henry's over in France trying to conquer it as part of this Hundred Years' War. And as we mentioned, things are going quite well. They've conquered 
large swaths of territory, including a very lucrative territory known as Gascony in the south of France. This is where they get a lot of wine. The grapes. The grapes are from Gascony, and he who controls the grapes controls the wine. He who controls the wine has the money. And has a good time. That's right. (laughs) But Henry dies in the year 1422, and he's very young. Although he's been fighting this war in France and been doing a really good job of it, it's costing a fortune to do this. In fact, the crown is deep in debt because of the war. They owe something like 164,000 pounds, which may not sound like a lot of money, but you have to realize that annually the crown probably took in about 33,000 pounds. So this crown is owing almost six times what it takes in in a single year. On top of all this, because Henry's spending so much time over in France, he's not paying attention to what's going on back in England. And what's going on back in England is that you are seeing a breakdown of law and and a rise in disorder. What you need to remember about this time period in England is that society is structured kind of like a pyramid. You know, you've got the king at the top of the pyramid, and he owns everything by, by God. He's got the divine right of rulership. God chose him to be king, and so he has everything because God wants it that way. Obviously, the king can't manage everything, so what he does is he distributes land to various lords, and they have the land, and as long as they pay taxes on it, they can pass it down to their kids, and their kids can rule it, and they can pass it down to their kids and keep paying taxes. Nice. Seems like a good setup. Yeah, so, you know, at the top of the pyramid, you've got the king, and then below them, him, you've got the very, very powerful lords, you know. These are people like the Starks, the Lannisters, the Baratheons. People that have rich, large lands. Exactly. And then under these lords, you've got smaller lords, because usually these lords have so much land of their own that they have the same problem that the king has. They've got so much land, they can't possibly manage all of it, so what they do is then they give parts of it to lesser lords, and... The lesser lords get to pass it down to their kids as long as they pay taxes on it and report to the lords above them. Now, another part of this system is that those lords have to fight for these higher lords above them, these great lords. They have to be able to call their banners. These are the bannermen. Now, at this time period, you've got lots of powerful lords running around, and... They're not necessarily at war with one another, but they are in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. See, now there's lands, but there's also titles and offices and money that you can get from the crown. And you need to compete for these because the king gives them out to whoever he feels like. And so you need to show that you are worthy of getting all this stuff. So there's a lot of competition. And people being what they are, oftentimes if... One house wins something that another house was hoping to get. There's a little bit of resentment there, a little bit of bitterness. And this can build up through the generations. And in fact, it had. So by this point in time, you've got rivalries that are set in stone between some of these very, very powerful lords. So these powerful lords, in addition to managing their land, they also have to enforce the king's law. Now, they're not necessarily going to enforce the law against some of their bannermen in case they piss off their bannermen and the bannermen decide to go run to another powerful lord. Mm. 
So what you have at this time is some of these bannermen running around and acting like gangsters almost. You know, they're committing highway robbery. They're raping people. They're killing people. And there's no justice in the realm because these powerful lords will let them get away with, well, murder, literally, as long as they agree to support the lord. Yeah. And the king's fighting in France, so he doesn't even know about all this stuff. Exactly. The king's... Justice comes from the king. Exactly. The king is the one guy who can set this straight, and he's off in France fighting war. So you've got massive debt for the crown and the country, and you've also got lawlessness and disorder on the home front. Now, the cherry on the shit Sunday is that when Henry dies, he has one son, Henry VI. When Henry V dies, Henry VI is nine months old. As a baby king. Eat a baby. Oh, Eat man. a baby. <laughs> I decree. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, a nine-month-old cannot rule a kingdom. Uh, there's very little a nine-month-old can rule. Uh, maybe just a dirty diaper. Mm-hmm. So what you have is a regency council. The problem with a regency council is that all of a sudden, the competition for titles and money and offices that you had before when there was a king ruling the country gets magnified by 100. Because if you can get a seat on this regency council, you can almost act like the king. So there's competition for this regency council and who can sit on it. And that means that the central authority, the stability that a king provides goes way down, and all the fractions and competition and infighting between the lords goes up and England's problems on the home front are further complicated no one is really dealing with the problems now when Henry VI turns 16 he decides to end the Regency Council this is a little young uh, a lot of times people will wait until they're 18 but he says no I'm going to end it now now, England's problems are still very fixable. You know, all it takes is a king who's ready to, you know, spend some time in France, spend some time over at home, and, you know, rule the kingdom. It's going to take a very capable king. It's going to take a very smart king, a very shrewd king, a king that is going to have an eye for the problems and an eye for the solutions. Henry VI is not this kind of king. Oh, that sucks for England. I'll let... Someone else described this king, Pope Pius II. He described Henry as a man more timorous than a woman, utterly devoid of wit or spirit. Hey, do me a favor, just reread that. A man more timorous than a woman, utterly devoid of wit or spirit. Nice. Now, you small folk, you're illiterate, you might not know what timorous means. Timorous means timid, someone who's easily bullied, someone you can go up to and say, hey, give me your lunch money, and they'll give it to you. A George McFly. Exactly. I got it. A Sam from the wall. Okay. Without the brains. <laughs> I'll let another chronicler describe the king. This one's anonymous. Obviously, you cannot criticize the king at this time unless you are the pope, but... But this is how an anonymous chronicler characterized Henry's reign. The realm of England was out of all good governance, 
as it had been many days before, for the king was simple, and led by covetous counsel, and owed more than he was worth. His debts increased daily, but payment was there none. All the possessions and lordships that pertained to the crown the king had given away, some to lords and some to other lesser persons, so that he had almost nothing left to his own. And such impositions as were put on the people, as taxes and tailages, all that came from them was spent in vain, for he had no great household, nor maintained any wars. So we see here that Henry's not only timorous, but he's simple. And, of course, at, for that time, simple means not just stupid, but almost mentally retarded. So Henry is not only a coward and easily bullied, but he's probably some sort of light mental retardation going on. There's some autism. Yeah. He's not the king that England needs. He's easily swayed by those who have his ear, and by people who have his ear don't even have to give good reasons for what they want to do, because to Henry it's all the same. So, during this time, Henry is not dealing with England's problems, but what really kind of puts the final straw onto the camel's back is that he loses the war in France. You see, before this, during the Regency Council, someone known as Richard, the Duke of York, had been in charge of the war in France, and he'd been doing very well. He had expanded England's territories in France, and he had consolidated their gains. Most importantly, he had consolidated Gascony. All of a sudden, the wine that England controlled could now move from Gascony back to England. So everybody likes the Duke of York. The Duke of York is quite popular. Cool. But the Duke of York has a rival. Remember, the Duke of York is one of these great lords. The great lords have rivals. And the Duke of York's rival is someone called the Duke of Somerset. So while the Duke is doing great things in France, the Duke of Somerset goes over to King Henry, simple, timorous King Henry, and says to him, that Duke of York guy, he's no good. He's out there in France, he's getting power, he's getting money, and you know what? He wants to make himself the king. Now, there's a grain of truth to this because the Duke of York is from another royal line descended from King Edward III. He is from a royal line known as the Yorks. That makes him dangerous. That's what Somerset tells King Henry. Now, it's very, very unlikely that the Duke of York had any aspirations for the throne at this point. He was one of the wealthiest men in England. He obviously had more money than the crown because he was not 164,000 pounds in debt. He's very popular with the small folk. He's very popular with other lords in the realm. He has no reason to want to take on all the responsibilities and debts of the King of England. Moreover, the Duke of York is a godly man. And remember, God wants King Henry VI on the throne, and you don't want to go against God. No, you didn't. Of course, this didn't stop the Duke of Somerset from telling King Henry to put him in charge of the war in France. And that's exactly what King Henry did. He took the Duke of York, who's 
been kicking ass in France out of there and put the Somerset guy in. That's right. And the problem with that is that the Duke of Somerset is a terrible soldier. <laughs> He's just god-awful. In two years, he loses everything. He loses Gascony. He loses Normandy. He loses every single piece of territory that England has in France, except for one small castle called Calois. The war is lost in France. This is the time when Joan of Arc is running around and the Duke of Somerset cannot deal with her. Mm. But, because he has the king's ear, he's still getting lots of money because he's in charge of the war in France. He's getting titles, he's getting offices, he's getting honors. He's doing very well personally, even if the war is going poorly and England's problems are rising. See, another thing that goes wrong during this time is that piracy breaks out in the English Channel. So all of a sudden, all the goods in, that England's trading in are being picked off by pirates. That includes the wine. The wine, John Bryant. Okay. The wine! <laughs> Not the wine! How are you going to have a good time with no wine? This makes people very mad. So what's going on with the Duke of York? Well, as part of his coup d'etat against the Duke of York, the Duke of Somerset has the king appoint him Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. And the king does not fund this position. So the Duke of York is having to pay out of his own pocket to be the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Now, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, that sounds like a pretty nice position, doesn't it, John? Yeah, I mean, I like, I like Irish whiskey. Yeah, uh, Lord Lieutenant, that sounds like a pretty big deal. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. It's not. <laughs> Ireland is a backwater. It's uh, it's the sticks. It's the rednecks. It's the barbarians. It is so far away from the center of power that the Duke of York has been effectively banished from the king's council, which means he can't plead his case to the king. He can't get the king's ear. He has no more influence with the king. And in addition, he's going broke because the king is not funding his position as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. It's Jeez. a very expensive proposition to run Ireland, and the Duke of York is having to pay for it out of his own pocket. So it was like he was this, you know, really good saucier chef guy. And the head chef went, you're doing a really great job. I want you to go run this McDonald's. And I'm not going to pay you. That's right. Okay. You've got to pay to run the McDonald's. <laughs> okay. you got to buy all the food. you got to pay all the workers. Um, oh, and by the way, anything you earn goes to the crown. Mm. So uh, the Duke of Somerset thinks he's pulled a fast one. He's gotten rid of his rival. He's making his rival go bankrupt, and he got his rival the fuck out of court. He's thinking he's done good. Sitting on his high horse. That's right. So by 1450, the people of England are pissed. No more wine. Before we go any farther, there's something we need to tell you about English people during this time period. This is the Middle Ages. This is a time when people were kill each other. This is a time when you've got something called the Hundred Years' War going on. All right? There's wars going on all over the place. Life is cheap. People are very violent. Now, keep that in mind when I read what a French chronicler wrote about English people during this time. They are men of haughty disposition, 
hot-tempered and quickly moved to anger, difficult to pacify and to bring to reason. They take delight in battles and slaughter. So even during a very violent time period, people in Europe thought the English were violent people. All right, you've got to be pretty violent if people think that you're violent in a time period when life is so cheap. Now all this boils up, and in 1450, you have a rebellion amongst the small folk. They are led by someone named Jack Cade. This is what the rebels want. Also the law serves for naught else in these days but to do wrong. For nothing is sped almost but false matters by color of the law for bribery, dread, and favor. Also we say our sovereign lord may understand that his false counsel has lost his law. His merchandise is lost. His common people is lost. The sea is lost. France is lost. The king himself is so beset that he may not pay for his meat and drink. And he owes more than ever any king of England ought. For daily his traitors about him, when anything should come to him by his laws, at once ask it from him. So what they're saying is, everything's lost. We've lost France. We're losing all the merchandise to piracy. We've lost the law. People are running around killing us. People are broke, man. There's no money anymore. And in fact, what little money there is, the king seems to be giving out to people like the Duke of Somerset that have surrounded him and are bullying him into doing whatever they want. It's almost like there is no more king of England. There's just a bunch of flunkies ruling it. Now these rulers, uh, sorry, these, these rebels, they don't want King Henry VI to go, remember. God wants the Plantagenets to rule. God wants the Lancasters to rule. God wants Henry VI to rule. But God didn't say anything about these lords around him. And Jack Cade and the rebels are saying that these lords gotta go. And they want to replace them with someone capable. Someone smart. Someone with a proven track record of getting things done. Someone like the Duke of York. Oh, the Duke of York. Join us next time, small folk, when we bring you part two of the Wars of the Roses. Very well done, Lynn Thunder. Thank you for expanding on some actual history. That's pretty interesting stuff. That's right. The, this all happened, and it forms the basis for the Wars of the Five Kings. And, you know, you can see some of the similarities. You know, you've got uh, a, a mad king in King Ares, and you've got a a king with similar mental issues in King Henry the Sixth, um, you know. Well, the warrior king kind of sounds like Robert to me. You know, he yeah, he's a warrior. He puts a crown in debt and doesn't really care too much about what's going on in his own kingdom. You know, this guy was out, you know, fighting in France, where where Robert was kind of just drinking and whoring. Yeah, I mean, Robert loved fighting and didn't like ruling, and that's what King Henry the Fifth was doing. Hmm. So yeah, lots of similarities there, and I think you'll see some more when we get into part two. Great. All right. Well, small folk, that, that's it for episode one of WPR, Westeros Public Radio, brought to you, of course, by the Joffrey Foundation. Fuck the king. 
Join us next time when we talk about the Dothraki. Ooh. We give you another top five list, list to expose you to the people, places, and cultures of Westeros. And, of course, part two of our multi-part report on the Wars of the Roses. You're our talker. Listening to talkers makes me thirsty. I understand that if any more words come pouring out your cunt mouth, I'm going to have to eat every fucking chicken in this room. If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. I found you surprisingly beautiful in a brutal, horribly uncomfortable sort of way.